Uh, hey, everybody, welcome back to the podcast, uh, Learn, Grow, Teach, Parent. And today we're having a conversation with Lloyd Goldberg. He's an attorney, a family law attorney here in Florida. He is also a parent of two. And we were very interested in getting his take on uh, what it's like to, through the years, see the evolution of families and, and how that's affected uh, different children and different people. Um, how's it going, Lloyd? It's going well. It's very nice to see you. It's been a long Absolutely. Time. It's terrific to see you too. Well, you, do you mind telling everybody a little bit about yourself and just give a little background? No, not at all. Um, South Florida kid. Originally uh, came from Boston, Massachusetts when we were super young. So growing up in my father's house, we still considered ourselves Bostonians, but uh, did grow up in the Sunshine State, followed him uh, to law school where I graduated from the University of Miami. And then shortly thereafter that started working in the field of criminal law. And I did that for the first 20 years of my career where I was trying cases in the courtroom. And then when the recession hit in 2008, 2009, and the economy changed completely, uh, and I was going through my own divorce at the time. I had two small children, 12 and eight. And because I was an attorney, I thought, well, I'll just do this myself because I didn't want to spend a whole bunch of money on lawyers. Um, so that experience sort of propelled me into adding family law to the practice uh, because frankly, despite the recession, people were still spending money on divorces. And then when we came out of the recession, uh, or at least came out of the, the initial catastrophe of it, the increase in divorces was obviously significant um, because the stress of all of that just added to that the stress people were already going through when marriages were falling apart. So it was kind of a natural progression. Um, and here we are 13 years later, and I spend probably 65 to 70% of my time handling family law cases. And I would say that 90% of those are initial dissolution of marriage cases, and the other 10% are post-dissolution cases, where people are going back to court because they're still disagreeing over money or disagreeing over how the children are being parented or should be parented. So it's been quite the evolution. Um, and interestingly enough, the practices are compatible because the criminal practice is an in-court practice where I'm, I'm in court in the morning a lot, uh, but the family practice is mostly an office practice where we're allowed to go to court uh, by Zoom for a lot of the time too. So I can literally be in the morning in criminal court and in the afternoon, I'm in the office working on family cases. So it was, it was a very natural symbiosis between the two. And now I find that there's an overlap um, in very many of these cases, because now you add, unfortunately, all too often a domestic violence component um, that will bridge the gap between the criminal side and the divorce side. And you've got to be able to deal with all three. And oftentimes we have three cases with the same two parties in front of the same judge. Hmm. So it's, um, it's quite interesting, actually. So that's what I do. Most of my, my office is in Fort Lauderdale. As a matter of fact, I'm trying to eliminate the physical office like everybody else these days, seeing if I can um, do it from home. I mean, I know that I can keep practice flowing. The question is whether or not I want to work from home all the time. I think having the office provides me the opportunity to be around people and to have that socialization. So there's a psychological jump to it. But for now, this is the plan is to try to see if I can downsize and eliminate some costs uh, and be uh, more effective for my clients. But that's pretty much who I am and what I've been doing. You know, as I'm listening to you and you say that you switched your practice around 2008, I'm, I'm shocked at how long ago that was. 2008 was, I mean, that's, it's a while ago. Uh, I started, I started my uh, company in 2005, my wife and I, and we really sat down together and said, okay, well, what do we want to do? when it comes to a business, because we decided that we'd, we'd, we'd share this responsibility. 
And at that time, I'd just come out of a brick and mortar business and the exact same thing you're going through, I, I went through, I said, I don't want, I don't want employees. I don't want brick and mortar. I don't want the, the hustle and bustle. If we're going to have kids, why don't we try a business where we can both stay home? And that's a very, in 2005, that was extremely forward thinking. Yes. So after 18 years, my wife and I did uh, successfully do that. We have two, two girls, like you were able to raise two children. I was also divorced prior as my second time around with my current wife, Robin. And I, I find it super interesting because you, you, your kids are older now, but when, when you were divorced, they were younger. And a lot of times these, these kids are younger and now you have this vast experience and what type of advice do you have for people that are raising kids together pre-divorce that can serve as a sort of prescription for how to do it right by the kids now? I'm not talking about you know marriage between adults. I'm just talking about the children here. Do you have any insights? It's a fantastic question, Mark. And the reason why it is is because most of the time the question – that gets asked is how do you, what advice do you give about how to handle things with the children after the divorce? I have never had anybody in all these years say, you know, what advice do you give the parents ahead of time? And I think the reason is because it's, you have to have, first of all, in order to give good advice, you have to have people that might be willing to, to first take advice. And I, it, it's very difficult to find a couple that, you know, when you brought up the question, the first thing that came to my mind was the whole Gwyneth Paltrow, Chris Martin decoupling thing that everybody made fun of years and years ago that now is to me something that I would use as an example. Because if you have a couple that care about the children and that are mature enough and forward thinking enough and emotionally intact enough to be able to say, okay, our marriage is ending, but our children are important to us. And together as a collective, what can we do to ease them from this transition from being, you know, a family that looks like this to a family that looks like something different. So I think it's very rare that you have people that have that attitude in the first place. So we're doing a lot of cleanup rather than a lot of preparation. So boy, what a wonderful question. If you can start to incorporate that, that whole idea of thinking from beforehand, it could change a lot of things. Um, but I always say that in the end, the, the best thing that you can do ahead of time is realize that it's up to you. What happens is there's always so much emotion involved in the divorce case that objectivity goes out the window. People spend a whole lot of money on things that they'll fight over in a divorce case that they would never think of spending money on when the marriage was going well. Um, and it's very rare that they put the children first. Um, and it's not always conscious. Most of the time it's not that, that, that they don't put the children first. They, they're just reacting out of shock and out of grief and inexperience and trying to figure out how to navigate a very difficult situation and there's anger and emotion involved. Um, so I don't know that we're ever going to have that opportunity to give that kind of pre-breakup advice. But where I'm going with this is, you know, people, they're always fighting over the little thing. Well, we can't, you know, the child shouldn't be in this little apartment or, you know, the kid can't be in this kind of environment because he or she hasn't been in this kind of environment before. And, oh, we have to, you know, maintain some sort of status quo. And, you know, for me, I try to always fight through stuff like that. And I tell people it's about the two of you. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where your children are. It doesn't matter where they end up. What matters is the two of you. So if you can relate to each other in a way that is respectful uh, and constructive and relatively objective and do your best to leave your children out of the conflict, 
then you'll have healthy children. It doesn't matter where they end up. It doesn't matter that you're getting divorced. What matters is that the two of you can focus on caring about the well-being of the children. The kids are going to be fine in the tiny apartment or in the big house or in the bed with the three cousins. All of these other external factors that people use as excuses to not come to an agreement or to relinquish some sort of phantom idea of control um, to me are all irrelevant if you can put the kids first and understand that this conflict is between the two of us and it has nothing to do with the children. But imagine what a difficult task that is, Mark, to accept that advice. Oh, yes. I can absolutely see that once you've gone down that path of decoupling, it it's it's a battleground. It's tough. It's very, very different than the hardest thing for me to understand is where we went wrong with this idea because divorce is, is nothing. It's not a new concept. It's happened in the past. And as here's an interesting question for you. Let's presuming there's no violence to either party, presuming that there's no danger anywhere. Do you think that we make it just a little bit too easy for parents to, to get divorced? I have a take on it. It's a loaded question because there's so many layers to it, right? It's, you know, uh, let's assume that we do. You know, what is the alternative? You know, what do we, what do we put people through in order to allow them to get divorced in a free country, right? So you have all kinds of different topics that you can address and, and, and actually have separate podcasts dealing with each individual topic when it comes to something like that. Um, but there's a gen, there's a, there's a bigger question and I, I actually think it may, it's too hard to get divorced. You do, you believe it's now it's too difficult. I, I believe it's always been too difficult to get divorced. And, and what I mean by that is rather than what you're talking about, which and I'm going to assume that I, I know what you were talking about for the sake of the conversation, which was, you know, is there a way that we can help people to try to figure out first what they might be able to do to save their marriages, you know, um, and a grand idea, I believe, because as a, as a divorce lawyer, I make my money when people get divorced. But my first option when they come to me is always to say, can you save the marriage? because it's going to be a lot cheaper for you if you can save the marriage. And then ultimately, if you do the things necessary to, to save the marriage and rebuild, boy, what a, what a wonderful thing that would be. And unfortunately, most of them can't or come back six months later and say, we tried and failed. What I mean by making it more difficult to get divorced is our system It, it, it takes people at their most difficult time in their lives. And I've heard studies, I don't know if this is true, that divorce is one of the most stressful things, if not the most stressful thing you could go through in life. But the system treats divorce cases like any other adversarial process. So you don't have the kind of thing where our system brings in a family and says, hey, we're going to look at this family and together we're going to decide how we can, you know, facilitate a quick, relatively easy, you know, efficient divorce. It doesn't do that. It pits party against party. So now you have two people that are in the throes of, 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 of a, a, an emotional nightmare, a depression. Now they have to each get lawyers and fight with each other. And guess what? That takes forever to get through the system. They're fighting with each other, oftentimes living in the same house. It's a very hostile environment. And who are the victims? The children that are also living in these environments for months and months and months and months. And then to top it off, Mark, you, when you can finally get into court, if you're lucky enough to have any money left, 
then perhaps you can work something out in the courtroom. But by then, you've given all of your money to the lawyers. There's nothing left for these two families who most of the time are just scraping by living in one household. So imagine, now you have these people that are now having to support two households, fighting over money that's no longer there because the lawyers took it. And I'm one of those lawyers, but I come from a different sensibility. I came from the criminal side where we're sort of instinct is to get the case done in as uh, fast as possible uh, because the fewer hours that we work, the more money that we make, but the ultimate goal is to have a happy client. And unfortunately in the family law system, you never have a happy client. Nothing ever goes fast and the children end up being the victims. So to me, and I, you know, I would make a lot of people very upset in the system if I had some power because I would do away with a lot of the pre-trial procedure. Um, and I think that getting, and, and to be specific, I, I mean, I know I'm rambling on and the idea is to get to, to try to understand how this affects the children. But to me, this is the biggest issue that we face. And, and that is the time that it takes and the money that it takes from these people to get these cases resolved, it, it, it destroys the families. It doesn't help them. So that's something that I would change. I would eliminate mediation. I would eliminate guardians ad litem. I would eliminate pretrial conferences. I would eliminate all of that crap that takes forever to get a case to court. And I literally would, as the judge, I would follow every file. So instead of having all these preliminary hearings, I would simply have one or two case management conferences where I bring the people in. And the purpose of that would be basically to warn them that come the day of trial, I'm going to have two or three hours to learn your entire life and make a decision. So you can decide whether you want some stranger to preside over your divorce. I know nothing of you. I have six of these today. So come on into my courtroom and whatever I decide in my limited amount of time, I'm going to do the best I can to follow the law and that'll be my decision or the two of you can work it out yourselves in a fair way. I'll see you at the day of trial. And then when they show up at the trial, it's going to be the same thing. You have an hour to go out in there and work it out or I'm going to decide for you. And it's going to be that simple. And then cases will get resolved. They'll get, they'll, people will get their divorces much, much quicker. They won't spend their life savings trying to get there and the children will be better off for it because then you won't have these two people that are at war forever. It's an int it's a difficult thing to battle like that every day. I mean, it takes a lot for an attorney like yourself to, in the face of such conflict and in the face of uh, division, di you're literally dividing assets, you're dividing time, you're, ultimately going to now be sharing your children instead of something that I think we all hope for more, which is, you know, I believe in a nuclear household where both parents bring the best of what they can to the rearing of, of children and that they do it in a, in a way that they, I don't think there's a prescription for being the right kind of parent, but I do think that just spending time with your kids is a gift and they really do appreciate that. And I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, as you're talking, I'm thinking, how do I bring this back to education? And, you know, when you and I went to school, uh, you know, junior high school, what we now call middle school, they had, they had home ec. And in home ec, there was a certain amount of modeling that was going on that was teaching the dynamics of what happens in a household. And I'm sure that you and I grew up in a time when we spent a lot of time eating dinner around the table with you know, mom and dad, the best we could. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a antiquated vision of what life can be like, but it's one that I really believe in. I believe that you need to spend time with your children modeling positive things 
so that they can then come out of it and say, oh, this is what it looks like. Oh, it looks like this. I'm, I'm, I'm at least as they grow older, they'll have that side of the story. They can have both sides, you know, and then decide what type of adult they want to be. But what if we taught family dynamics in, in middle school and in high school? Would you be able to come up with a curriculum for something like that? Are you talking about trying to prepare kids for the eventuality of their parents divorcing or themselves divorcing and how that might look from the moment they decide that's something they need to do until the moment that it happens? Well, I'll give you an example. Um, when, when, there, when there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of problem in the foster care system where uh, People were getting pregnant, young teen mothers were getting pregnant, and, and they were going into the foster system, and in that foster system, they were essentially uh, showing them how to have that child and then let go of that child so that they could then be adopted. And uh, I don't remember who it was, the study that I read, it was a brilliant woman who came up with the idea of saying, well, why don't we just, why don't we just start teaching these gals that are pregnant and these uh, fathers that are not married but are part of this system? Why don't we start teaching them basic parenting skills so that they can understand, hey, this is how you change a diaper. Maybe they never knew how to change a diaper. This is how you take care of a young infant. The scariest thing in the world is to have a young infant and, and absolutely no manual on what to do. So when they began doing these things, uh, the, the relinquishing of the child from this parent was cut dramatically. In other words, a lot of these parents decided to keep their children rather than give them up for adoption or, or go into foster care. And it was all, it was a matter of education, right? Suddenly they decided, well, maybe I can do this. And of course, I think that applying that same logic to kids, you don't have to necessarily teach, uh, oh, this is what it's going to be like if your parents get divorced, or this is what it's like if you, let's go back to that modeling, just the simple thing of, well, how do you talk to another person and resolve things? where dignity and respect is mutual? How do you communicate effectively? Because, uh, you know, how do you come up with uh, a vision for your life in the future? And how do you share that with someone else? I think that... That's a great question. Wow. I mean, it's funny because I'm 56 this year and I'm at this stage of my life where I finally understand how uh, I relate in my relationships has everything to do with my own inner experience, my own childhood trauma, if you will, and the triggers that I experience as the result of my interaction with other people. So what you're talking about, Mark, really is preparing kids to understand themselves. And, and, and this is an answer directly to the second question, which is, um, you know, how do we, how do we get these kids to, to be able to get to a situation where they can have a constructive conversation in a high stress conflict? I mean, that's kind of really what you said there. And that would require us to teach kids from the very beginning about understanding how they feel and why they feel that way. Because what I've learned still at 56 and continue to learn is that that's what creates your response to what you perceive as a particular trigger. So if you can, for example, you know, I think in the end, most of this boils down to fear, right? So if you can teach a child how to understand that what that child might be feeling is fear, so that the child can recognize, oh, that's fear. I understand. Why am I feeling that way? Because I'm afraid. What am I afraid of? Well, I'm afraid of the nuclear family falling apart and not being able to see my dad or not being able to see my mom or these are the fears that I have. Well, then teaching the child how to be able to deal with those fears. So it's almost like, again, it brings us back to the idea of a focused decoupling education all the way around. So from the, the child in the classroom to the parents themselves. So 
that would be the only way I think that you would be able to psychologically prepare a child um, or a teenager to deal with the the unknown, the stress, the fear uh, of, of a divorce. And then, of course, you have to have parents that are willing to facilitate that. You know, a, a lot of this comes from my own experience. And the reason that that is important is because that's what propelled me into family law in the first place. And then I had my own divorce, of course, and my children were this age. So fortunately and unfortunately, I have all of the experiences that I now talk about and try to guide other people through, including the ugly. Mm-hmm. And I have no problem admitting this. When we first got divorced, I, I felt like a victim. I was horrible verbally. I, I was abusive to my ex-wife with my tongue. Um, I was mean. I was angry. I was bitter. I alienated my son against her. I did all of the the evil, horrible things that I try to coach my male clients uh, against and the ones that I try to help my female clients understand. But the fortunate part of that was that I care. My children have always been my first priority. So I was able to recognize the damage that I was doing to everybody, including myself, um, and then reverse that and then see how what I learned next brought me to you, which is how you can do it healthy in a way where you can have your family after divorce, just not the way that you expected it to be. And you have that choice. And there were things along the way that gave me those epiphanies where the light bulb went on and I woke up. The first one was the day that I left the house I thought to myself, okay, I'm free. I'm divorced. It's over. I don't have to deal with that anymore. And then I realized, oh, this is Sunday. My kids have school tomorrow. I got to come right back here and pick them up. And what did I learn? I learned that, no, the divorce didn't end the situation. It just changed it. If you have, if you don't have children, of course, it's a different story. But this right. yeah. podcast is focused on the health of the children. Right. So if you can first realize let's try not to do so much damage in the first place because we have to see each other tomorrow and next week and next month and next year and at that birthday party and at that Christmas party and at that graduation and at the dance and at the football game. And then when our grandchildren are born, it's never over. So if you can realize that, then you have an opportunity to perhaps minimize the damage that you're going to do in the beginning because you're not going to get away from one another. So if you know if you can realize that in the first place and avoid that damage, your children are better off for it. So, you know, that's the, that's the first order of business is recognizing it. Yeah, you you do an excellent job of describing the the permanence of you're in a marriage, there's children, it's permanent. Uh, it, it does change a bit when when divorce comes into play and then now your lives have to adjust. But I think even married couples make adjustments to their lives. I, I'd had an interesting thing happen to me. I want your take on this. So, you know, when I, when I was divorced, um, I was young. I was 34 years old. Uh, my child was only four years old. And uh, it, it's very difficult at 34 to to see yourself where I'm at now, you know, I'm, I'm turning 60 in, in a, in a month or so. And so to me, the, the journey that I took initially was one of how can I, I really wanted to get married again. I really wanted to have children. I, I mean, I, I love being a dad and I like the idea of, I liked the idea. I wanted the idea of, of more children. Now, obviously I lost a wife. I couldn't have more children. So I needed to rebuild myself and re-examine what I was going to do. And I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of soul searching, but it took me to one place where I began to sort of research, well, where are the most successful marriages? And the most interesting thing I found out about was, and I became, I became an advocate of arranged marriages where, you know, what, what is it about an arranged marriage that makes it so successful? And what it boiled down to is this. 
wiser people sat down with the younger people and worked out a lot of details prior to the marriage. They worked out things like, you know, what do you, where are your beliefs? Where are your values aligned? What, how are you going to handle difficulties when they come down the road? What, how are you going to save money? What is it about your uh, own selflessness that can be brought out? And of course, the negotiation now is the father or mother from the two young couples that are trying to get together and that wisdom plus that non-negotiable, no, this is non-negotiable prior to that sort of created an, a situation where the young couple had a pathway to success. It was just there. So when I remarried, that's what I did with my, my now, my wife and I have been married for 18 years. And when I remarried, I sat down and I said, look, this is how they did it in the old days. Let's work out all these details. What do we want to do? Do you want children? Yes. What, how are we going to raise them? What are your values like? What are my values like? Where, you know, where do I see the world changing? And it's this education that I'm talking about bringing to the classroom. You know, it's this is fascinating. It's fascinating. Um, I never actually paid very much attention to, um, arranged marriages, uh, other than, you know, those gut judgments you make in passing when you hear about it, which is, boy, how strange that must be to be forced into uh, marrying a stranger. What an, what an odd thing. What a, what a culturally uh, difficult thing to understand. And again, so much of my understanding, I guess this is common for everyone, is based on my own experience. And just as you're talking about it, I again said to myself, Mark, what a positive consequence of an arranged marriage that I never actually, it never occurred to me before. And, and the reason why it, it crystallizes for me is because, again, talking about my own experiences, I get into relationships based on passion and, and things that aren't real. And then rather than recognize as time goes by that the person isn't right for me, I'm still stuck on that dopamine thing, right? That, but what I, what I realize is what you just said, because now the way that we date is through social media and, and apps. So what are we doing? We're choosing someone based on how they look. That's what we're doing. We're not getting to meet a person, learning the essence of a person, and then along the way, either falling in love or saying, I'm not in love with you and I don't want to be with you and naturally breaking away because you're making the choice. You're picking it like you would pick something from a store. With the arranged marriage, you work out the details ahead of time so you have an understanding of how the choices that you make affect that the pathway that you're going to have when you get involved based on passion, what do you say? Well, we'll work that out later. Everything will be fine. We love each other. Hmm. And nobody, right. Nobody looks forward to say, well, well, wait a second. What? Yeah, we do. But when you're working six, something. when you're working 16 hours a day and you're completely exhausted and I'm over here, you know, taking care of kids for 20 hours a day and I'm completely exhausted and we don't, you know, then how are we going to deal with those conflicts? Nobody ever discusses that because oh, we're just so much in love. And I think that with the way that you're talking about it, it's more about the way that we actually used to date, which is, all right, who are you and how are we going to approach this? And to me, it certainly makes a lot of sense. And, and I don't know that it would be right for everybody or even myself, but I can understand why there is success. And I think another big, huge component that shouldn't go unnoticed is not just that you have the four wise people that are guiding these children, but you have a collective now. You have his parents and you have her parents who are already of this of have a meaning of the minds so now you further increase the chances of success because those young people can't really play one off the other they can't, because the whole family unit on both sides is on board so they have that it's a wonderful thing 
I'm sure that has to be the reason for success. Yeah, absolutely. And you make a great point of dating now, how it's, I mean, it's always been a visual thing. I mean, men and women are, we, 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 maybe the technology is getting in the way a little bit, but you're, we're still seeking that which we want and adore. Right. It's different though, in the sense that earlier it was a hybrid at least. So for example, when we're young and you're surrounded by a bunch of people, whether you're in school or you're in camp or you're in some sort of sport, some social situation that younger people have more of an opportunity to be involved in, at least when we were, you know, in, in our generation than now or our, at our age now you it, it still can be more organic because there might be 10 girls or seven boys so you don't have to just you know flip through a screen you can walk over and say hello and start a conversation and sort of see how that feels um so to me it's still there are some organic natural you know sort of progression to it and i don't feel that at all and well, it's, it's kind of sad to hear that. And I, I realistically speaking, I do understand what you're talking about, that the dynamics have changed dramatically. But I also think of it in terms of when children are born into a family, they are born and they what's modeled is what the mom and dad are doing from when they're little, they receive all that modeling, but they never really, they might hear anecdotal stories, but they don't really understand how, well, how do they, how do they become a couple? What were the what were the consequences of what, what was the what were the milestones that were met in order to understand that marriage was in play? And so much of that, I think, is muddled right now because we we the expectation of the marriage or the expectation of finding someone that you love has become idealized and romanticized, but from a, a pessimistic point of view, almost because of the preponderance of divorces because of the you, you see kids and you know half of them are a product of divorce and it's not a good example of family dynamics or what could potentially occur so to break that cycle it's almost as if you have to you have to teach in the way that manners were taught for society because there's things you do at home and then there's the uniforms we put on when we go out into society right and could there be a way of teaching just how to interact with the people that you could potentially want to date? How do we do that in a way that, you know, I'm not saying that you have to arrange whom you are going to be married to. I think you have to take the best component of that and say, well, what, what is all this pre-communication that occurred? What is all this expectation management that occurred? What, how do I know my own moral code well enough to say that you match me? How do I? Well, that's, that's yes. And, and I don't have to answer that question because what, <laughs> again, it brings us back to trying to educate children to understand these things. And I, you know, <laughs> I don't like to speak for most men, but I, 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 very strong in this opinion that most of us don't grow up in, at least until we're 40. So how is it that we can expect children to understand their own, or I shouldn't even say children, young people in their early 20s to understand their own moral code well enough and to be strong enough to be able to say, okay, not only do I know my own moral code, but that's not, that's not consistent with it. So as much as I love you, or as much as I think I do, or as much as I lust you, I have to be strong enough to know that that is inconsistent with my moral code and then take a left turn. I don't know how we teach young people that because like I said, you know, most men our age aren't able yet to do that. So you're talking about, again, Mark, you know, it's very idealistic because you're talking about educating society the way it's supposed to be. You're talking about home ec, and that's the way, that's what school should be. School should be home ec. Um, school should be teaching kids, and you, you know, you've heard this cliche forever. Why don't they teach kids how to write a, a check, balance a checkbook? Why don't they teach kids what an IRA is or, a, a, you know, compounding interest is? Why are we not teaching kids that? Why are we not teaching children conflict resolution? 
Okay. Another thing I've learned at my advanced stage and in my in my social life is I'm you know when I go on dating sites I'm no longer saying you know do you like to travel or do you like to drink wine or do you smoke? No. Now it's what's your conflict resolution style, and are ours consistent? Because if they're not, then we don't belong together. So you know if you can educate young people as to their own conflict resolution styles and then what to look for in a partner and why that's so important, then you're halfway to success because there's always going to be conflict. So if you can teach them how to resolve that conflict in a constructive way without doing damage, my weakness, the tongue, right, is, you know, saying destructive things in the heat of the battle that you can never take back. How do you teach people to avoid that in the first place, right? So that's yeah. what you're talking about, Mark. And just a, a quick brief example of that, how I can relate that to my former D, well, not my former, I still do it. But what I used to do was 100% drunk driving defense. And after you get convicted of drunk driving, you know, they send you to DUI school and they make you take the Mothers Against Drunk Driving Victim Impact Panel. And, you know, you have to do all of these remedial measures. And it, it the question I ask is before they give the driver's license, why don't they send you to DUI school before they give you the driver's license? Why don't they make you take the mothers against drunk driving's victim impact panel before they give you the marriage license? Why don't they make you take that parenting class? Which by the way, I think you should Mark has a parenting class, everybody. So <laughs> I will promote that. But I, but you know, that's the question. Why don't we do it ahead of time? You know, making it more difficult to get divorced, which is how you started the podcast. Maybe we should make it more difficult to get married. Maybe we should make it more difficult to have children. Maybe you should be required to have the education ahead of time, not after the fact when the mistakes have already been made. So it's all, you know, part of the same process that we all, we tend in our society to spend a lot of time, money and focus fixing things that are broken rather than, creating an environment and an education system where we can avoid breaking them in the first place. Yeah, this is an excellent point. Um, and one that I agree with very much, you know, this used to be, we had that, you know, I, when I grew up, I had to take that mothers against drunk driving test before I got my license. Uh, I had, you had to, you know, watch a movie and, and go to a certain type of class. And I, a lot of these things that used to be societally, uh, accepted are not pushed for the sake of progress. So it seems regressive to go back to a time like when you say certain things, it would seem to be that, well, we got past these issues um, through the years, through our, through, you know, whatever it was, the civil rights movement, the uh, awakening of feminism and, and uh, all these things that occurred. So it seems regressive to then go back and say, well, but we had a lot of things that, that were right that I, that I believe that we threw out the baby with the bathwater and some of the good stuff went out and now we need to come back to it. I mean, the first thing is just being able to talk about opposing point of views and, and not shutting down the conversation, being able to allow, you know, if I were to declare in a room full of young women that I believe that arranged marriages are successful that's it. The conversation would stop. But once you look deeper and you understand that, no, that's not what I'm, I'm not telling you not to fall in love or to have those other feelings. I'm simply saying that preparing yourself for life is a gift you give your future self and anything that you can do to prepare yourself moving forward. I mean, you and I both know that creating a parenting plan is part of when you get divorced. Well, why not teach people how to create a parenting plan before they get married. You know, in a way I did that because, um, and we do that a little bit. I mean, religious communities do that. We're both Jewish. And, um, when I met my wife, I had already started converting to Judaism and happened to meet a, a wonderful Jewish woman that I was interested in. But when we sat down and, uh, in the Jewish faith, you, the marriage contract is called the Ketubah and it is essentially a legal document. It's kind of dry, but it's back to that idea. This is what you're going to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is what I agree to. This is where 
where if I don't, if I don't fulfill these things, I can understand that you're going to be a little disappointed and that it's your job, me to understand where these barriers are to our happiness and our success. And that we mutually work together towards the benefit of, of, of our life and that the evolution of that marriage is going to grow deeper in love with the addition of children. And then it's going to grow even deeper in love with the uh, success of the overcoming of the obstacles that, that, that life throws at you. Cause life is going to throw you curveballs, baby. You know that and, and they're ugly and they come at you fast and hard and you will have to find a way, even as a, as a man, you have to find a way to cope and deal with it. And, but as a partner, as a husband, you have to find a way to do that. And as a father, you have to find a way to do that. And it's all of these roles, uh, I think, come from practicing them. And people always, uh, young people always ask me, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you, uh, why are you such a good dad? Why do how did, what happened to you? Was your mom and dad like this? And the reality was that it wasn't, but I, growing up, I had lots of avenues where I had a job when I was 10 or 12 or 14. We, if I wanted a bicycle and I wanted to buy it, I had to earn the money and work part-time in odd jobs and get it. I, uh, additionally, uh, if I wanted to understand responsibility, I, you know, I was responsible to my crew. My, I was in the Boy Scouts, but I was also part of friends. We loved to go camping and I was 14, 15. And we were out in the Everglades <laughs> camping completely, uh, uh, exposed to the elements, but capable. Yeah, I think, I think it's unfortunate because when we talk about these things, Mark, it brings me back to how it's different for our kids now. So as an example of that, you know, now my what I see for the most part with the boys in particular, girls are still social and they want to be together. They want to go shopping and run around, you know, but the boys for the most part, are at home on their computers playing video games. The socialization has disappeared. So on the one hand, we're, tra we're talking about trying to teach kids positive conflict resolution, but at the sa same time, we have to deal with the reality, which is there's no socialization at all. So their conflict resolution is to click off the computer if there's conflict, if there's conflict at all because they're not necessarily in a situation where they would be required to deal with conflict that arose. So it's, there's so, it seems so much more difficult now hmm. to raise healthy kids, you know, because of all of the way society has changed the internet in particular. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, as a computer programmer, I spent a lot of time in front of a computer for my job and, one of the things that I did when my girls were young is there was no technology in the house. We did everything old school. So they, they, the, the first time my children got telephones, they were in ninth grade, high school, nothing in, nothing prior to that. Yeah. And we, we sat around and ate a lot and cooked at home and more so that I, I believe that what breeds the ability for resilience in children is range and that people hear stories about the success of certain, you know, like prodigies or my kids really good at math. So now they're, they're a math elite and they're down that path or they play the violin. So suddenly they get lessons when they're, you know, three and four. And I've always believed in range. I think the broader the, the exposure and the more I taught my girls how to do things with their hands, the easier it was for them to then say, well, I, 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 uh, as I got older, my varied interests will fuel my ability to navigate the world. Very, and I don't think it's so hard to do that uh, in, in a curriculum. I don't think it's hard to say that, you know, whittling a stick or archery or even cooking can be part of our formal education. I think we put too much emphasis on STEM. You know, I'm not an anti-intellectual, but I agree that age-appropriate learning is very important for children. 
and and that is and they're able to handle things you know both of my girls can just, the fact that they never had social media doesn't mean they don't have friends it you know it, well you know right before you were about to bring that up about the technology in the house and the kids not having phones until they were in ninth grade i was just about to go there and that if somebody asked me now and they ask me this all the time, my answer is the same. Um, what advice would you give to a new parent? And I say, I have only two pieces of advice short of, you know, love them. And, and you know, always try to approach your children as, Hey, no matter what, when they look over their shoulder, there you are. And that, you know, that that's the foundation for everything. But the two things that I always say in particular is God do what you can to let them fall down. You know, especially that first child, if you can figure and no one can, I couldn't. Um, but I say, if you can let that, you know, that first child is don't hover. Oh my God. Oh, I got a baby proof the house. Oh, I got a, you know, I just got a new puppy. I didn't puppy proof anything. The puppy's going to learn what he can and cannot do. That we, we don't have that approach anymore. When we were kids, that was the approach. It was, you know, oh, you fell down? Okay, you won't do that again. Oh, you touched the burnt stove? Oh, you won't do that again. So that's the first order of business, the first piece of advice. If you can let that first child fall down, please do. And then the second one is treat the technology like our parents treated television. When we were kids, you came home from school, you did your homework first, you did your chores first. Then you got your privilege. And what was it? Well, maybe it was to go outside and play, or maybe it was an hour in front of the television. It's the same with the phones. I tell the young parents, do the same thing. You know, let the kids earn their privilege and then they get their privilege. But you walk around with your little wicker basket or whatever your style may be at nine o'clock at night or whatever your bedtime is. And to all your kids, every single room, and you say, okay, phone's in the basket. And you walk out of the room. And then your children will grow up with that balance, right? Mark, you're saying that, well, my kids have plenty of social media. doesn't mean they don't have friends. Why? Because, well, first, again, another podcast, which is a, a family-focused father, which, again, you have to have those things, right? Mm. Um, but then in the end, if you can do it like that, your kids will have balance. I, I definitely see a need for sort of a, a, a retelling of some stories and ideas. Here's the best way I can put it. So my daughter, Annabella, is a, a senior in high school. But when she was 15, she did a project where she had to cook every night for, uh, I think it was a month, two Six months. Go already, this project? Yeah, can you believe that? She, she had to do this uh, cooking. And, you know, the purpose of it was, Find a mentor, find someone to teach you, and just dedicate 100 hours to it, 100 hours of, of work, and then see where that takes you. And of course, that was just the, the teacher's idea of, of uh, helping a child understand that if you stick to something and, and, you, and you work at it, that you'll find success. Even through failure, you'll find success. But Annabella, she turned 16, and now she goes into high school, and she begins to think about, well, what did that do for me on a very deep level? And she came up with the idea of raising some money and saying, listen, cooking to me and everyone sitting around the table and eating actually helped me with so many other things. It helped me with, with dealing with any anxiety that I had. It gave me a chance to meditate and learn. It slowed things down for me. It, it helped me with studying. It helped me with schoolwork. It helped me with social interaction. It was so beneficial. Oh, I wish I could. Oh, 100%. And, and these were all positive things. And she said, I wish I could give that to other kids. And I said, why can't you? And so she came up with this thing, the Food for Thought program. And she essentially raised some money. She did a presentation. I think you saw it. And the presentation was a uh, uh, Give me some money and I'll go to my principal and ask him if I can run this program where I teach 20 kids how to cook from scratch because she cooks everything from scratch. And uh, the principal said, I love this and then gave her the format for it. She raised the money and, you know, last year she did the program. There was 20 kids and she 
essentially taught them how to, how to make pasta from scratch, how to make, you know, an entire meal using ingredients and not, you know, opening boxes and bags and, and not that that's bad either. It's just, that was her way. But it's, I think what it, what it is, is it's things that, you know, if they're lucky enough to have parents in the house that do that, maybe take for granted that the kids don't know how to boil pasta, you, you know, things that you assume. I experienced that with, with my children when they were, you know, in their late teens where they would ask me something that I would be like, how could you not possibly know that, you know, something so seemingly insignificant? Well, dad, because you never taught me. I was like, yeah, you're right. I, you're right. I never taught you how to use needle nose pliers, you know, <laughs> something that you, you know wouldn't occur to you. And of course, you know, why would we expect kids to know how to, Oil pasta, they've never done it. That's why so, so many things are like that. So many things that could be incorporated and folded into our educational system that it's just another way of saying if we educate the future with tolerance, well, they don't necessarily become tolerant that's not really the case it's it's kind of like saying well we want to teach our, our kids to think and that's only half of the story because if all right i taught them to think and then they can go out and think these ridiculous outrageous things or they they re-examine the world and they come back somehow thinking that you know communism might work it, you know these are all and you can't be mad because you told them to think and to be original to use their own mind but unless you have an underlying moral value, unless that is couched in a position that goes beyond activism or social justice, that really comes down foundationally to, to these things that will ultimately make us more compatible with, with other humans, then that free thinking can go, it can go to the wrong place. And I just want to think of a world or create a situation where uh, maybe your job of a divorce lawyer is different, not less lucrative for you, but it's better in the net, the results socially for everyone. Well, if these... I'm sorry to interrupt, but I used to say to people all the time that if, if drunk driving disappeared, I would happily do something else. You know, and people say, well, why, then why do you defend drunk drivers? And well, that's a whole nother answer have a whole podcast on that and your brother yeah. will join us on that. But the, the bottom line though is, you know, just that, I mean, actually I lost my train of thought, but, um, well, yeah, yeah. you can pick, pick it up. Cause I had to do that. <laughs> well, no, I, I see where you're coming from. I see that the, the idea of something of you benefiting or, uh, uh, any one of us benefiting from the misery of another person or, you know, these things have to be done. So we do them as compassionately as we can. I mean, clearly you're a super thoughtful man who definitely wants what's best uh, in, in your clients and in, in the world. And that, you know, my, that, was, that was the example I gave about the, the family law issue where I would cut through you know, uh, I would I would cut out a lot of the the money making operation that everybody else takes advantage of, including the lawyers, because I think in the end the system needs to be for the people, and and it's not. So yes, of course I would sacrifice my own income. I, I wouldn't even say that. I would just transition into something else. That's all. You know, that, it, that's right. Yep. Be, yes. I, I definitely see um, a place where the world can be, uh, where education can be more about how we interact with each other and, and the net benefit that we bring versus this antagonistic battling against a perceived good guy, bad guy, because that black and white has really hurt us, I think in a bad way. I mean, there's just like, and you can see it in every instance, the redemption of someone's failure is a better story than the revenge that I seek 
because that revenge that I seek ultimately, it hurts everyone involved, including the people that I love. And it just doesn't, doesn't work out. You know, this has been a terrific conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, and, and what I like most about it is the, the sprouting of the additional conversations that we can have now because, you know, there, there's so many ideas that pop into my head as we're talking about this. And I, I know we're out of time, but, you know, things that we should discuss in the future are, you know, today we, we talked a lot about some ideals, right? Things we were fortunate enough to be able to experience growing up, like having, you know, a parent that cared, you know, or being that parent ourselves, even if we didn't have that growing up in the house. And I think that it's worth discussing, you know, how do we help the children who aren't fortunate enough to have those experiences, people that don't have the education, may not have the same coping skills that we might be lucky enough to have. How do we help those kids? And then back to what you were talking about before, which was, you know, the nuclear family. And then we can discuss whether or not, you know, are we headed in a direction where in our society, maybe that's no longer important. What are the consequences of that? Should we push back? What would be the consequences of that? I mean, these are all things that are important because some might argue that if, you know, if the nuclear family is no longer important and, and this is the direction that we may be heading, are we going to continue to exacerbate the conditions with young kids that we're discussing here today? Because without that, you know, are we setting the kids up for failure? I mean, there's all kinds of things that we can be discussing in terms of how our kids are, are, are affected going forward uh, and, and dealing with divorce. Yeah, I, I like uh, I like the topic of what interventions can we can we can we create? How can we make the world uh, a better place through conscientious intention? Absolutely designing it, designing this you know, without the need to marginalize or move people or uh, minimize the struggles that people go through. We know that things are difficult, and I think that 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 struggle within that struggle comes the the creative force of making your life better because you need to be able to do that. But I do think in in a similar way that I mentioned, you know, these mothers that were uh, stuck and they didn't know what to do, and they went into the foster care system, and then suddenly, with just a tiny bit of education and reinforcement and encouragement, that 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 made a positive impact. And I, I definitely think that that's something that can occur day to day in our in our schools, in our lives, and it's but it's going to take a reawakening of what it means to be a parent, what it means to uh, want to have the best for the world through creating what's best for your own children. That has to be a priority. My priority growing up was to raise a healthy, competent, you know, independent adults. So everything that I did raising them, not everything I did, but I always tried to do everything with that focus, which is how do I, what do I do here in order to manage the situation so that I achieve my goal? which is to raise healthy, independent, competent adults. Um, and I think that th it starts there. You have to want to, like anything else. Definitely. Uh, let's do another one. Let's talk a little bit about what type of topics you find interesting. Let's see what the comment section does. But uh, it was wonderful to sit down and chat about uh all these topics that we covered, it was a very free flow of information. We did this kind of like by the seat of our pants, but you know, you and I are. We can, we can start streaming lot, streamlining things and, and making things, you know, more concise and tight now that we develop our, our, you know, our interaction, our little symbiosis. And I think it's like a fine comedy, you know, when you watch a comedy on TV and you, watch the first couple of ep episodes and it's a little rough 
you know, but by season two, you're hooked. You can't turn it off. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm getting the hang of this myself. Uh, is this the first podcast that you've done? See about the green screen. I have green screen. I just don't know if there's, if the, if this platform has the ability to like on zoom, I can, you know, I have the most beautiful uh, green screen backgrounds for core purposes. So I don't know if this platform allows it, but we should see. I'll, I'll do some research and make sure that we get you the best of the best. Yeah. But uh, Lloyd Goldberg, it was excellent to speak with you and we'll talk to you soon.